Robert Frost wrote a poem, Two Roads Diverged in a Yellow Wood, and Sorry I Could Not Travel Both. And be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how ways leads on to way, I doubt if I should ever come back. So I, so I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. There is a call that Jesus makes to every person every man, every woman, every boy and girl, everyone in the world, and that call is to follow him. And we read in our text tonight, come unto me all who are heavy, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ calls to us. There's a road that is less traveled. He asks us to take that road, and that road is what makes the difference. You're here tonight because there were two choices you could make. When God spoke to Israel... He gave them a choice. I lay before you the blessing and curse, life and death. Choose life. God has always given us a choice. God's always given us a choice to follow. And he calls us to follow him. And we're going to be talking about the call to follow Christ tonight, the call to follow Jesus. And uh, the first, uh, if you go to the next slide, it is a call, the call to follow is a call to conviction. Come is an imperative. It's not casual. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, come over and see me when you get a chance. You know, drop by Saturday. We might throw something on the grill, have a little get-together if you can make it. Okay, Jesus, I'll, I'll check our schedule. If it's good, we'll be there. But it wasn't something casual like that. This is, a, in the Greek, it is an imperative. This is like Jesus was imploring us to come. Mm-hmm. Come. Come, not if you get the chance, not if you have the opportunity. He is saying, come to me. And he says, to, the next word is to. These three main words right here, come was an imperative, to expressing close proximity and intimate fellowship. Not go there, not come here, or not come there, but come to me. Come here. It's like your parents saying, come to me right now. Jesus was calling for a close proximity and intimate fellowship. And then Jesus says, come to me. In the Supremacy of Christ trailer, there is a question asked, and I'm kind of paraphrasing that, uh, about different religions. All the voices, all the people, all the things in the world, all saying that they're right, that this is the truth, that this is the light, this is the way. Can they all be right? Can they all be right? Now, no doubt there are voices calling out for our attention. That's what advertising is all about. When you turn on a television show now, a television show runs a pro- an hour show, you actually have about 42 minutes of actual programming. The rest is commercials. Over 25% of that hour is taking up, taken up with trucks, 
Your life will be better if you drive a Silverado. <laughs> All right? All right? You need to drink light beer. Yeah. And Preparation H is the best hemorrhoid cream in the world. <laughs> All right? These are the commercials that we get because they know that they want to get our attention. You know, we're one of the few countries in the world that advertises prescription drugs. In most countries, it's illegal. And every time a new drug comes out, ask your doctor, oh, yeah, I need some uh, Trojinta or Prolia, or I need some something. I need this. I need it. I need it. So our pharmaceutical sales in this country are into the trillions of dollars for advertising, people, things trying to get our attention. And here's the truth. They'll say, here's the truth. And even when you go into churches and different religions, here's the truth. No, here's the truth. There's the truth. Or there is no absolute truth. They tell us that there are many ways to God. Man, just, just chill, man. There's many ways you can find God, man. <laughs> there are many lights to show us the way to peace. There's many lights. Jesus was just one light. But there were many lights. That's what the world tells us. Now note, Jesus didn't say that he was a way. He didn't say that he was a truth. He said, okay, I'm one of a bunch of ways to God, you know, if you choose me. I mean, all roads lead to heaven, so just be a good person. Do the best you can and, and, and do good to your neighbor and you'll all be okay. He didn't say that. He didn't say that I am a way. He didn't say that I am a truth. Now, some people like to compare the teachings of Jesus to the teachings of Buddha, and there are a lot of areas that overlap. There are some things in Buddhism that is very similar to things in Christianity. There are some things in Christianity that are very similar to Buddhism. Now, here's, here's a newsflash. I mean, it's, Buddhism is, doesn't really consider itself a religion. It considers itself a philosophy. You basically find God in yourself. But if you take those two things, you're going to find the areas that they overlap are very small in comparison to the things that they don't agree with. There's a lot of things that, some things that are very compatible and some things, a lot of things that are very incompatible with our Christian faith. But Jesus didn't say that. He says that he is the way, the truth, and the light. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's John 14, 6. And there are not many ways to God. There is only one way to God, and the way is Jesus Christ. Now, that is not a judgmental statement. How can you be that harsh to think all these good people, God's going to send them to hell, and there is only one way. We're not saying that to say that we've got a monopoly on God, and we're the best thing on the block, and that you know, if, if, we're better than you are because we worship Jesus. I'm simply stating a truth that there is only one way to God, and that is Jesus Christ. That is the only way to God. The truth. I know this for myself because I have tested the words of this book. It's a very important book. The teachings in this book are very applicable to my life. They have transformed my life. I found that this works. And it's in, in, in a philosophical sense, what other religion in the world teaches us to love our fellow man? to be nice to people, to do good, to love God, to make a difference in the world. Christianity is a, is a great, great truth that God has given to the world. And Jesus declared that he was the truth. 
not a truth. The Word made flesh. God became flesh. The Word became flesh. God became like one of us. He is the truth. He is the way. And no man comes to the Father but by Him. The statement is a statement of truth and a statement that implores that people come taste and see that the Lord is good. We're not calling you to be snobs to everybody on the block. We're not calling you to condemn your neighbors because they don't worship where you worship. But you have something that can transform people's lives. Amen. Amen. God's given us this. Not so that we can beat the rest of the, the religions down in the world, but tell them that we have something that can radically change your life. In these three words, come to me, Jesus is calling you not to just accept him as your Lord and Savior. A lot of people, when they've heard the, they've heard the call go out, they've heard the invitation, and I don't know, and you know, we, we lived in Louisiana for a number of years, over 20 years, pastor there, and there's, a, there's just about as many more Baptists than Pentecostals in the, the area that we were. You were one or the other uh, up in the northern part of the state, and uh, they call it walking the aisle. You ever heard that term? Yeah. He walked the aisle. Oh, Jimmy walked the aisle last night. That means he came and he made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of his life. He walked the aisle. You know, and they give the invitation, the, the organist is there, and, and every head bowed, every eye closed. Why don't you come on down right now? And then they all come and everybody claps. Yay, Jimmy Ray! I actually had people in my church like that. There was Denny Ray, there was Bobby Ray, there was Ray Ray. <laughs> Bubba Ray. Junior. All right. So it was, when we make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, it's a big deal. It really is a big deal. But when you lived in biblical times and you said that you, Jesus was Lord, that was a really, really big deal. Because the, by declaring Jesus Lord in the time of, of the apostles, that could be uh, considered treason. And you could be sentenced to death for declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. This was the first rallying cry of the church. Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 13. We got another screen up there somewhere. Romans 10, 13. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a guarantee. I didn't say that. God said that. God put that in his word for us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the early church, just saying that could put you to death. Now, Rome, and people wonder, why was that? Because Rome was a polytheistic society. There was a, like we have a church on every corner. There they had a temple on every corner. There were temples to this God, temples to that God, temples to the unknown God. When Paul was in, on Mars Hill in, in Athens, there were many gods, many different gods. Even the emperor declared himself to be a deity. You were free to worship as long as you didn't claim exclusivity, that your religion was the only one out there, the only truth. 
Everybody kind of accepted everybody else's gods to get along. We went along to get along, except the Christians. Christians didn't do it. They just didn't do that. The early church would not declare the lordship of any other god. By declaring Jesus Lord, they were saying that his authority was higher than that of Rome and the emperor. This was interpreted as a direct assault on the status of Caesar and his authority. The Roman emperor decreed that he was to be worshipped as a god and the Christians refused. There were, I, there were statues of Caesar put up all over the Roman Empire and people were to go and worship and make their offerings, make their sacrifices. It was a law. It was a decree. They had to. This was the law. But the Christians refused and this led to extreme persecution. There's a man by the name of Clement of Rome. <clears throat> He wrote to the believers in Corinth. He was one of the apostolic fathers. And around the end of the first century, he wrote to believers in Corinth to stand firm because the persecution that Christians were experiencing was increasing continuously, wave after extreme wave, wave after extreme wave, because they refused to worship the emperor. And he told them to stand firm. He reminded them that Christ was their leader and they were his soldiers. Basically, Jesus is our commander and we will follow his orders. We will not follow the orders of another. In 155 AD, Polycarp, he was also one of the apostolic fathers. And at that time, he was in advanced age. Uh, he was a protege of the apostle John. He was, the Apostle John was one of his mentors. This man was known him personally. So he had a connection with John who had a connection with Jesus. And he was very, very old at this time. And he had refused to worship Caesar. And he was sent before a Roman magistrate because of his unwavering faith. And the elderly saint would be spared. The magistrate told him, I will spare your life if you will just take a pinch of incense and put it in a brazier and burn this at the foot of the statue of Caesar. Just a pinch of incense. Just burn it and I'll spare your life. And we think, you know, it's just a, it's just a little bit of incense. What could be the harm? I mean, the statue really doesn't mean anything. You know, I'm, just put a little pinch there. I'll spare your life. You can go free. But Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Now, in our society, we wouldn't see any, you know, we don't see the big significance. But in that time, by just taking that little pinch of incense, just a pinch of incense, and putting it in that incense burner, that was a big deal. That would tell everybody that Polycarp, that the Christians not only believed that Jesus was God, but they also would acknowledge Caesar as God. And they would not do it. He was taken out. He was tortured. He was killed. And his body was burned. His body was burned specifically because the Christians taught that the body is sacred and that we are waiting for the resurrection of the dead. And so they thought by 
burning his body, it would hinder his chances of being resurrected. But God knows if we're burned like that, we're cremated. Some people don't like cremation. They don't, they're against the idea, opposed to the idea. My wife says she doesn't like it because what if I wake up in the furnace? Yeah. <laughs> to me, I tell her, you know, it's like, you, you see, you go by memorial gardens and there's people paying thousands of dollars for a hole in the ground that nobody's going to come and cry over forever. Eventually, everybody will forget who you were. Say, oh, whoa, that guy was only 56 when he died. Oh, look at you over here. That's it. So don't you think God is able that if we are cremated, that he knows where all the ashes is? Are? <laughs> that he can put all the ashes back together. Saying these words reflected a commitment, not just a religious observance, like the ancient catechism of baptism. Now, we baptize today. Baptism is important. Let me tell you this. Baptism is an important thing. Jesus commanded us, he that believes and is baptized, go into all the world, baptize them. Everywhere we find in the, new, the book of Acts where the apostles went and preached the gospel, they baptized the believers. It's an it's a, it's a ancient catechism. It's part of who we are, part of our walk with God. It symbolizes that when we go down to the water, the old man that we once were is dead and buried and raised in a newness of life. Amen. That's what it symbolized. In Jesus' time, it was publicly declaring to everybody around, the person I used to be no longer exists. I am a dead man. I am a dead man. Buried and raised with Christ. In 1975, a band called Dogwood produced a song entitled Watergrave. Now, you probably heard the Imperials do it, but the Imperials weren't the original version. It was a group by the name of Dogwood. I don't know if you've ever heard of Steve and Annie Chapman. Yeah. This was them prior to just being Steve and Annie Chapman. They were part of Dogwood. And it says, I'm going down to the river. I'm going to be buried alive. I want to show my heavenly father... The man I used to be has finally died. When we declare Jesus Christ as Lord, we're basically submitting ourselves to him, saying the person that I was, that person ceases to exist. I acknowledge Jesus as my Lord, as my Savior, and I am submitting myself to renounce everything else and submitting to be a bondservant, a slave to him. The declaration was manifested in a different lifestyle, giving allegiance to a heavenly kingdom, and it was living out kingdom principles, willing to be put to death rather than renounce the lordship of Jesus. The call to follow is a call to conviction. On the, all the liturgical Pentecostals said amen. amen. <laughs> C.S. Lewis says, He does not call us to a sloppy half-heartedness, but to a vigorous, absolute commitment. He calls him... To, he calls us to make him our Lord. Now, not only that, go to the next slide, please. The call is universal. This is a universal call. It goes out to everybody. Men, women, old, young, red, yellow, black, white, brown. Amen. 
My, my, my sister married, a, uh, her first husband was, was Mexican. And so my, my nieces were, would come to church with my mom and I, and they would come home and they would sing, Jesus loves the little children, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. And he'd ask them, what about brown kids? Jesus doesn't love brown kids? <laughs> Jesus doesn't love you? And he'd make them cry, you know. Jesus doesn't love us. Oh. <laughs> but Jesus loves everybody. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither female or male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Second Peter 3 and 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen. I can't, and, and I, this is just me. This is, you know, there's a, there's a debate in Christianity today with Reformed theology, and, and I just can't wrap my head around the idea of Reformed theology because I read scriptures like this, and it says, God calls all to repentance. God wants everybody to be saved. God wants everybody to come to a saving knowledge of him. The call to follow Christ is for all. The doors of the church are open to all. Okay, now hang on and remember what I said before you hit, get one little phrase and you forget everything I said and you don't hear anything after that. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. He's, the doors of the church are open to all. The addict, the poor, the outcast, the rich, the socialites, straight people, and gay people. The church is open to whomsoever will. Now, it's not saying that we condone sin. It doesn't say that we condone lifestyles that are in opposition to what the Word of God teaches. But it does say that God wants everybody to be saved. Everybody. And we can't pick and choose who we're going to share the gospel with. This is a call for whomsoever will. Let him come. This is not a call to condone sin or compromise what the Bible teaches. It's a call to love people and bring people into the kingdom of God. God dealt with you and changed you. God is able to deal with anybody and change them. Amen. We must stand for what the Bible teaches. We cannot stand for refusing anyone, anyone, an opportunity to know Jesus. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. My wife loves it on Saturdays. I usually get into this old school hymn thing. <laughs> And start bringing up all these old songs, and I'll sing to the dog, and she looks at me, and the dog's looking at me. <laughs> Number two, go to the next slide. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. It is a call, the call to follow Christ is a call to rest. My wife and I were running some errands one weekend. I don't remember if it was a Saturday, Sunday, just a few weeks ago. And we were running, going down a road here in Melbourne, and we passed in front of a church, and I read the church sign because they were advertising the sermon for this upcoming weekend. And it said, the truth about heaven and hell. And I looked at that, and I looked at my wife, 
and I said, wow, I wonder how many people are going to drive by and say, hey, look, honey, the truth about heaven and hell. Let's go to church. Let's bring our friends. We'll tailgate. <laughs> now, don't misunderstand me. There, there is a truth about heaven and hell. But by putting something like that on your church sign, you're not going to attract any people to come. I just shook my head. I think the church was answering a question that nobody was asking. I've never went up to work. No, no, nobody at work, at, at, that, you know, anybody that I, that I work with that doesn't know the Lord has never come up to me and said, could you tell me the truth about heaven and hell? I'd really like to know the truth about heaven and hell. It's a question nobody's asking. There are problems in our culture. Am I making some of you uncomfortable? I hope not. Well, maybe, I hope, maybe I should. <laughs> There are enormous problems in our culture, relationship problems, problems with children, people, parents have problems with their kids, kids have problems with their parents, people have problems with their friends, friends have problems with the neighbors, problems with the spouse. There's all types of relationship problems in our culture. Amen? Our families are under attack like never before. I believe that. I'm seeing things today. It's like I told somebody at work, you know, I, I, I sit in these meetings, uh, team meetings, and I tell people how long I've been married, and it's, I'm like married more, longer than most of the people sitting in the room are alive, have been alive, or they're older than they are. And I said, I've, I was telling a coworker, I've been married 36 years. And they said, Wow. That's something you really don't hear a lot about now. She said, people in my generation are never going to have that. There's relationship problems in our culture. There are enormous financial problems in our culture. We are a consumer nation. All right? I remember when I was a kid, my grandfather would not buy any tools that were made in Japan. Wouldn't make it. He was working at my aunt's house one day. I was helping him, and he was hammering, and the head fell off the hammer and hit him in the head. And he said, that's what the Japanese want to do. They're going to make cheap hammers, and they're going to fall off and hit us in the head, and, we're all, and they're going to come over and take over the whole country. LAUGHTER but we don't make anything anymore. We're consumers. Our economy is driven. Our economy is driven by you and me buying things we do not need. That is a fact. If we were to buy only what we needed, our economy would stop. That's how much consuming we do out there. <laughs> That's why we, we're, we like retail therapy. Yes, amen. <laughs> I got a witness on that. I'm feeling the Holy Ghost over here. <sighs> so we buy bigger, faster, 
Why have a 5G when you can have a 23G phone? <laughs> this phone can talk to the space shuttle. I don't know anybody on the space shuttle. Why would I want to call the space shuttle? But if I ever wanted to, I could. <laughs> we buy bigger, faster, sleeker, sportier because it's the American way. I'm helping the economy, honey. And what do people need in a consumer-driven driven economy to buy things they don't really need? Credit. Credit. So we buy the latest and greatest on credit. It's only $12 a month for 480 months. <laughs> credit to buy things we don't really need, so we, they run up the credit cards until they all need to attend a Dave Ramsey seminar. And millions of people are burdened with debt. I work for a healthcare organization, and every day my job is I deal with, I talk to um, facilities, medical facilities, and medical providers and professionals from all over the country. Okay? And every day I deal with situations where people have been admitted into a mental health or behavioral health facility and go over their benefits, go over their claims go over things with them. I've seen situations where uh, claims have denied. They wanted to know why the claim denied because if, if you read the, the uh, addendum in a, a lot of small groups do this now, that if you hurt yourself, if you get injured um, because that your behavior or your mental faculties were impaired, you know, if you're drunk or high on drugs, they will not pay your claims. All right? And so I deal with this. And this tells me that there are people out there in our country. There are problems in our country with people that have behavioral and mental health issues, mm -hmm. addictions, stress, anxiety, depression. There are people that are burdened down with these things. So let me run this scenario by you. So you're burdened down with relationship problems, you're filing for bankruptcy, and your kids are on drugs. So, oh yeah, let's find out the truth about heaven and hell. People have questions about real issues in life. And real issues in life are dealing with our relationships and our finances. Those are the two biggest things people have Deal, uh, that they face in their lives in our culture today. Two of the biggest issues. But why do we want to put things out there that people aren't really helping people? People have questions about these issues. More than they want to know if God exists, they want to know if God cares. Does God care about me? Does God do I really matter to God? And Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Go to the next slide. Oh, there it is. Thank you, guys. Uh, go back, go back, go back, go back, go back, go back. Are you, you guys were on the ball there, okay? I just assumed, forgive me. <laughs> are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to make a real, how to take a real rest the message bible 
Now, Jesus is not talking about heaven here. Now, going back to my Saturday hymnal uh, concert that I give my wife every week, <laughs> you know, <laughs> about um, the hallelujah side and I'm going to the promised land. What was the one I was singing today? I couldn't remember it. And it's, uh, <laughs> I go, something, something, something else, something else. And now we'd hit the line of what it was. <laughs> so it was all these songs about heaven. And it's like, oh, if I could just make it to heaven, if I can just make it in by the, by, by the skin of my teeth and just drag myself in. Now, we came up in a church, and years ago, they had this thing called testimony service. I don't know if any of you have heard that. You've been spared a life of, long of uh, you've been spared therapy. <laughs> because it could go really good, or it could go really bad. Because you never knew what anybody was going to stand up and say, ever. And there's some things that would just make you just fall out on the floor and laugh, okay? But evidently, they, they were always called. The pastor would call on somebody, who's got a testimony for the Lord? Brother Ed, why don't you stand up and give us a testimony for the Lord? I want to thank, thank the Lord always for all he's done for me, and y'all pray that I make heaven my home. Okay, Brother Ed, what are you doing that we have to worry about you making, not making heaven your home? <laughs> That was the environment that we lived in. We had a struggle. It was a struggle. We're just going to, if we can just make it to heaven, that was the goal. Just, if we can just hold on till Jesus comes back or until we die so we can be with the Lord in glory. And all our songs were about going home to glory. Can't wait till we go home to glory. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Just waiting, waiting, waiting. I got my bus ticket for that heavenly uh, bus that's going to come and take me to be with Jesus. I got my ticket. I'm just waiting at the bus stop, waiting for Jesus to come. Hmm. That's destination theology. Heaven's a given. Hey, if you're saved, if you're born again, if you've been filled with your God's spirit, guess what? You're going to heaven. Amen. <laughs> yes. Amen. Ta-da! <laughs> so Jesus, the idea is not Jesus teaching us about destination theology to get our focus on heaven. Heaven is not our goal. Heaven is a done deal. He's already taken care of that question. The real question is, what about tomorrow? And the next day, how are you going to live then? What are you going to do tomorrow? Because if you're just holding on and waiting, you're not of any value to the kingdom. Our goal, Jesus said, our goal was to go out and reach the world. Not, where will you spend eternity? The clock is ticking. Where will you spend eternity? This altar's open right now, but it's going to close in a few minutes. Will you be ready? Will you get hit by a truck on the way home tonight? <laughs> you, think I, you think I'm fa- making this stuff up. I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> Come on. Ticking. Ticking. Our goal is not to escape the world. 
Jesus said we're to go out into the world. Next slide, guys. You guys are doing a great job back there. Matthew 28, 19. Make disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Mark 16, 16. Go into the world and preach the gospel. Luke 24, 47. If you've ever been to a soul-winning seminar, you should know these scriptures. Luke 24, 47, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We are called to rest because there is a task at hand that requires we be rested. When Jesus said he calls us to rest, he's not talking about, oh, well, it's all over now. I could, I could, I'm, I'm done. But he's, he's calling us to rest like a Sabbath rest, to prepare for something. The word that's used there, rest, is for re- that's translated from the Greek, uh, is a rest to, as if we're getting rested up for something. Not an eternal rest, but a rest that prepares us for the task at hand. It's a test, or is a, a rest to, to prepare us to reach the world for Jesus. Next slide. It is a call to a disciplined life. The call to follow Christ is a call to discipline. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now the yoke has always been, historically has been a symbol of oppression and slavery. Bondage. Always has, historically. So why did Jesus, who preached liberty, use the image of a yoke? Now, I've heard all kinds of cute sermons that, you know, when, you, when you're plowing a field, you got the big, oak, the big ox and the little ox yoked together, and the big ox does all the work, and the little ox just travels along with the big ox. And they've compared that Jesus is the big ox, we're the little ox, and we just follow along Jesus and everything works out. But I think, I think Jesus was make, painting a very clearer picture for that day than for our date. And that is, he's calling us to a life of servitude. So whether or not it's a big ox or a little ox, we're still in a yoke, and a yoke is a symbol of servitude. He's calling us to service. And notice what he said. He said, take my yoke. It is a choice. We choose to follow. We hear the call. We respond to the call. And if we answer the call, then we must take up the yoke. We volunteer to become slaves, relinquishing our will, our identity, and our independence. Martin Luther said this, here is the truly Christian life. Here is faith really working by love. When a man applies himself with joy and love to the works of that freest servitude in which he serves others voluntarily and for naught, himself abundantly satisfied in the fullness and richness of his own faith. God calls us to be servants, Mm -hmm. to servitude. Mm -hmm. Now, this idea may run counter to our culture because in our culture, it's all about us. I mean, mean, going back to the TV commercials, it's all about you. Calgon, take me away. 
L'Oreal because you deserve it. All right? You're worth it. All right? Burger King, have it your way. All right? How do you, you know, everything's suited and geared toward you. This is the me generation. It's all about me, 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 me. And so the idea of being in servitude to someone or something runs counter to culture. And I think in some, it even runs counter to in some church cultures. There's easy, easy believism. As long as you just have a good heart, the Lord knows your heart, and you just have a good heart and just, and just believe everything's going to be fine. Now, in theory, it sounds good, but Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. Okay, if the tree's not producing any fruit, I don't care how much it's got a good heart. It's not producing anything. Our commitment will produce something. Positive thinking, you're absolutely greatest astounding existence at this time. <laughs> Buy my book. Prosperity teaching. God wants you filthy rich so you can buy airplanes and, and yachts and have all kinds of money and run around. And sleep. I've been through all these things. I've been through all these things and listened to some of this stuff. I even was at one time looking at some of this and leaning this way. God wants you happy. That sounds good, doesn't it? God wants you happy, so God wants you rich. God wants you to be free. Happiness is your choice. It's your decision. And these people preach an easy walk with God, one devoid of pain and disappointment. But they, the call to follow is a call to a disciplined life. My wife and I know, a, uh, know personally a, a very well-known uh, Christian recording artist. And she has been going on this crazy Facebook thing this last uh, couple of months. Uh, if I said her name, you would know who she was. Um, she got involved with you know, these prosperity teaching and all these big-name people and, and going to all these big conferences. You saw her on TBN. and We knew her from youth camp. <clears throat> and she got involved with this, this preacher, this guy, and they had an immoral, they had an adulterous relationship, okay? And it came out that he was having relationships with numerous women all over the place. So now she's like a woman scorned, and she's going on and on and on and on and on and on and on about this. And I'm thinking, wait, you know how many people this affects? Because you've been preaching a message of Christ and him crucified, and for the past few years, you have been living a lie? This is, this is it turns me out, I don't even watch, I don't watch much Christian television because I just can't stomach some of the things I see. Oh man, it got real quiet on that one. <laughs> There is a call to a disciplined life. God's not called us to be rich and famous. He's called us to service. Now, I borrowed heavily on this section from my son. I don't know if any of you have uh, come across his blog. My son uh, was brought up in a good Christian home. He's used this to his advantage because he no longer considers himself a Christian. He considers himself a Buddhist. He's even been ordained or something, and he's now an Obi-Wan Kenobi something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
That's his title. He's got some weird Buddhist name now, you know, and he's really into Zen. And uh, he wrote, a, he did a vlog. Of, he does vlogs, which are video blogs on YouTube. And this one was really good on discipline. I thought, man, it's, I'm going to borrow from that. I told him I'm going to borrow from that. And he said, make sure you tell everybody about my vlog and subscribe. <laughs> so he, he, he used, he um, gave some quotes by a man by the name of Jocko Willink. Has anybody ever heard of Jocko Willink? He is the former commander of SEAL Team 3. And if you, look at a, if you look at a picture of this guy, if he was an usher coming down the aisle, you would just put your wallet in there. <laughs> Car keys. Because he is a scary-looking guy. But he now is retired, and he's writing these books for business, and he was talking about discipline. He said, discipline equals freedom. People look for the shortcut, the hack. The shortcut is a lie. The hack doesn't get you there. There is no easy way. There is only one way, the way of discipline. And although discipline demands control and asceticism, it actually results in freedom. He was saying that by actually, by disciplining our lives, we're actually bringing ourselves to freedom. How many of you saw the Shawshank Redemption? Tremendous movie. Andy Dufresne, the character in there, wrongly accused of murder, sentenced to years in prison, and um, toward the end of the film, you see that he escapes. He was a geologist. He, he had a, a little passion of geology, and he had a little geologist's hammer. And for 19 years, he chiseled a hole in the wall of the prison and escaped. Through an open drain with raw sewage in it, the length of five football fields, he was committed to getting every day for 19 years, chiseling away on that wall, chiseling away on that wall, chiseling away on that wall, taking the dirt out pocketful at a time into the yard of the prison. And then when he got that last link, when he's going through that sewer and he's gagging from the, the smell and the filth, and then when at, the, at the end when he gets out, he's just standing in the rain. It was the discipline of being committed to that task that actually brought the freedom. It was the freedom because of the discipline. Willing also said, discipline, strict order, regimen, and control might appear to be the opposite of total freedom, the power to act, speak, or think without restrictions, but in fact, discipline is the path to freedom. Next slide. Matthew 7, 14, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, there are few that find it. Matthew 6 and 2, Any, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is calling to us to a life of discipline. This is not a call to legalism. We're not going to put a list of rules up here that everybody should abide by. But this is a, when we submit our lives to Christ, this is a life of discipline that every day we get up, we decide to put that yoke on, we decide to take up that cross and follow him. It's a call to surrender, a life that reflects Jesus in every way. This is how you find freedom. Jesus says, he who loses his life will find it. 
Every day the Christian is to die. Every day he renounces the sovereignty of his own will. Every day he renews his unconditional surrender. That's by Scott Stote. We are called to discipline, to surrender. When they took up the cross, Jesus said, take up my cross and follow me. In that time, now we think about it today, we don't see the vivid imagery as of Jesus' day. Because when, they, when the, a man was carrying a cross, everybody knew that guy's dead. He is a dead man. So when Jesus told his, those that would come after him to take up their cross, he was basically saying, if you come follow me, you're going to have to die. He says, I am, I am humble, I am lowly, which is, and, I, I look, and he told them to come learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart. That is to be kind-hearted and a selfless person, and you will find rest for your souls. When we truly surrender, his yoke is easy. His burden is light when we wholeheartedly commit. The hard part is getting the self out of the way. That's the real task. So Jesus calls us. The call of Jesus is a call to conviction, it's a universal call to rest, and it is a call to discipline. 